but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Our great God, we bow before you here this day, giving thanks for your sacrifice on that cross that day. We praise you that you, the Prince of Life, gave your life for us, that you laid it down of yourself, and that you took it up again, giving us hope, giving us life, giving us purpose and reason to live and enabling us to live holy lives before you. Great God, may this be real in each of our lives. May each and every one of us today know you and be known of you. And Lord, fill us with your Spirit and this morning, teach us that we may understand your word, your ways. Help us to apply your word. Help us to live as you have instructed us. We need you today. I pray that your spirit would move among us and help us to understand what you have revealed in your word through the apostle Peter. Help us, Lord. Help us. For we in and our of ourselves are weak and frail. And we need your spirit, your abiding, dwelling presence in our lives. And so this morning, we humble before, humbly bow before you, asking that you move in us, among us, and glorify yourself. I pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me to Second or 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is part 2 of the section here in chapter 3, covering verses 1 through 12. Last Sunday, we overviewed the passage and spent some time on the first part of the chapter in addressing the admonition and instructions given to wives. We very briefly dealt with that of husbands in verse 7, through 12, um, but uh, particularly in verse 7. And so this morning, my desire is to come back to this message, this passage, and to look more intently at verse 7, the admonition given to husbands, where it says this, "'Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them your wives according to knowledge, giving honor to them as the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers 
be not hindered. This instruction is rich and deep. It is profound. In fact, it is something that every husband needs to really meditate upon, think upon, and apply in their marriage. So much of the reason why the gainsayers, those who speak against God's word, the gainsayers reject the instructions given to wives in the first part of this chapter is because husbands have given such a horrible perspective of their role and have ignored the admonition given to them. Let me read the passage in its entirety, and then we will come back at verse 7 and look at it more closely. Likewise, chapter 3, verse 1, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation, way of life, coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be that of outward adorning, of plating the hair, and of wearing of apparel, or of putting on of apparel, or wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise, blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them, that do evil. The instruction is clear to wives and husbands. Wives are to be in subjection to their own husbands. If you missed last week's sermon, please check it on the podcast. You need to hear it as it is held in contrast and in complementary to what is today. In subjection, not, ob not objection or oppression, but in subjection, it is simply a matter of role, placing oneself under the authority or headship of the husband and one's own husband. This is oftentimes, though, a hard task 
And the reason it is actually so hard is because husbands fail to obey what's given to them. Husbands are said here to dwell with them according to knowledge. According to knowledge. That's interesting. As we talked briefly last week, oftentimes in our modern society, men excuse themselves by saying that they can't understand women and they can't know women, they can't figure women out. And so they use that as an excuse to not even try. That's sin. That's wrong. No. Husbands, you are, I am, commanded to dwell with my wife according to knowledge. I am commanded to know her. That's a big deal. Did you know that God doesn't give us commands that he doesn't expect us to obey? That kind of makes sense, right? And let me tell you another piece about God's commands. God doesn't give us commands that he does not enable us to obey. Let me fill you in on a little secret here. You, in and of yourself, will really, and I don't give this to you to justify or excuse you or me in any way, you'll never really, truly, totally, completely understand your wives. But let me let you in on a little secret. You know someone, you know someone else who knows everything about your wife. You know who I'm talking about? God. God knows everything there's to know about your wife. And let me tell you, if you do not have a relationship with the omniscient, all-knowing God, you are going to desperately and miserably fail at keeping this command. First and foremost, you need to know your God, because as you know him more, he will help you to know your wife more. It's very fascinating of all that is implied here of dwelling with them according to knowledge. Notice here that it doesn't just say, husbands know your wives. Don't miss that little description there of dwell with them according to knowledge. See, it's more than just knowing it's dwelling with them according to what you know. That means that what you know about your wife is going to impact how you live with her. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? But now do you see why sometimes men try to go to the root problem and say, well, I can't know my wife. She's impossible to understand. And then that excuse leads to dwelling with them miserably. Do you see how it builds and it complex, it becomes complex in disaster? We begin by knowing our wives and dwelling with them according to that knowledge. But you know, we have to be careful with that. Because God himself 
in the epistles to the Corinthians warns about knowledge. Now, throughout the Bible, knowledge is esteemed as very high and lofty virtue in the life of believers. But did you know that knowledge also can puff up? You know how many husbands think they know their wives, and instead of living with them according to real knowledge, they puff themselves up and live miserably with them, acting like they know everything. Have you ever felt like your husband was a know-it-all? You don't have to raise your hands. But sometimes, more frequently than not, husbands, we act like know-it-alls when we don't. And so we must consider this in earnest. Do we know our wives and is our knowledge of them real and true? Or do we just think we know them and behave ourselves under false information? We must beware, dwelling with them according to knowledge. There's another nuance to this that is very fascinating if we go all the way back to the beginning of time and continue throughout the scriptures to our modern time even. Did you know that in the very beginning, physical intimacy between a husband and wife was described using a euphemism? Some of you know what I'm talking about, and some of you, I just went right over your heads. That's intentional. Throughout the Bible, a euphemism is a way of saying something or describing something that you don't want to explicitly or in detail or bluntly state or describe. And throughout Scripture, actually, repeatedly, it is described bluntly, but in many occasions... Physical intimacy between a husband and a wife is described like this, beginning with Adam and Eve. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. Hmm, that's interesting. Oftentimes, when we think of physical intimacy, we think of physical intimacy. But from the very beginning, the very first description of it, it uses the word that the husband knew his wife. That's fascinating. That means that it's very much mental. It is very much emotional. It is very much spiritual. In fact, the physical is the smallest of problems. In fact, even in modern times, psychologists are just discovering that many dysfunctions trace actually back to what's going on in the head, sometimes requiring us, really, this isn't what psychologists say, but what the Bible says, our minds to be renewed because there are things that are in our minds that inhibit us and cause trouble. And so our minds must be renewed. You see, physical intimacy begins with knowledge. Knowledge. 
It's very important. And it wasn't just with Adam and Eve. It continues all through Scripture. Even when it comes to the birth of Jesus Christ, it specifically states that Joseph did not know his wife Mary until she had brought forth her firstborn son, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And then it goes on and speaks of him knowing her. Now, we could go into a lot of detail about that. But you know what? Not here. Not in this setting. Not in this time. But for husbands, and I used to think this was just for those about to be married or newly married, need some education about their wives. They need to know their wives. But the more that I've helped couples, I've found that really it's true for us husbands in all seasons of life in all seasons of life. Because once we think we've got our wife figured out physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever, you know what? Something changes. And we've got to figure it out again. And sometimes, may I say frequently, when that happens, men just give up. This is too hard. I already figured it out once. Now i got to figure it out again. How do I figure my wife out? No, we can't give up. As things change, as seasons change, as life changes, we need to be on a pursuit of knowing, knowing our wives. In fact, men are so dense and hard-headed that there are some things that God had to explicitly spell out in the Mosaic Law. Did you know that much of the law was given, and Jesus actually stated this, that it was given because men's hearts are hard? There are instructions given regarding multiple different things that when you read certain parts of the Mosaic Law, you're like, that's awkward. That's awkward. Well, you know why some of those laws were given? I'm convinced it's because men were dense. And they weren't dwelling with their wives according to knowledge and knowing how to know them and then live with them according to that knowledge. And so God had to say, dunk, 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 this is the way it works in this many days and da, 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 da. And sometimes you read this and you're like, huh? It's because men have throughout history had hard hearts hard-headed and not dwelled with their wives according to knowledge. So it is very important to dwell with them according to knowledge. Here, giving honor unto the wife. Here it's stated this honor is as unto the weaker a vessel. That's also interesting because describing her as the weaker vessel doesn't describe her as an inferior being. It simply states, perhaps maybe stereotypically, but generally true, that the wife physically is weaker than her husband. And taking this fact into consideration, the husband knows it and dwells with her according to that knowledge. But it's more than just living with her according to that knowledge. It's giving honor to her with that. This is profound because so many times marriage relationships between husbands and wives, are compounded because when a wife finds herself in a very weak point in a day, 
those are the times when husbands frequently are the most insensitive. Oh, we must not be like that. We must know of those days, and we must dwell with them according to knowledge. It's interesting as it continues on to describe this. Husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as into the weaker vessel. And, look at this phrase, as being heirs together of the grace of life. Oh. There's a lot packed into that. You know, we're heirs. That means we're due to inherit, or we have inherited something. First Peter, Peter in this letter has already discussed some of the incredible things that we have inherited in describing us as joint heirs with Christ back in chapter 1. And here now, one of the inheritances we have received is the grace of of life, the gift of life, the empowering of life. We've received this, and considering the fact that we've received this grace of life, it motivates us to dwell with our wives according to knowledge and to honor them. Remember I said a moment ago, that if you really want to know your wife, you need to know somebody else? Who do you need to know? God. You need to know the one who created her. You need to know him. Turn with me to a passage that is beautiful in describing our relationship with God, found in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. He said in John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. And he didn't just leave it there. Do you know what the rest of the verse says? He says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, that's God the Father, knoweth Jesus, the eternal Son of God, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Oh, husbands, do you see what's going on here? Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, and he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. And he says that I lay down my life for the sheep. Dwelling with your wives according to knowledge means that if called upon, you will lay down your life for your wife. Now, let me bring that to another side of things, because most husbands, probably in arrogance and pride, would say, of course I would lay down my life for my wife. But do you, do I, sacrifice our own passions and opinions and wishes and desires and fleshly wants 
for the better of our wife? Do we lay down on the altar every day those things that prevent us from dwelling with our wife according to knowledge? You see, Jesus, as we learned last week, knows the, his, not just knows, he has numbered the very hairs on our head. He knows us intimately in a, and in a way beyond husbands could ever know their wives. But you know something else that's fascinating about Jesus? is not only is here he described as the good shepherd, he is also described as the bridegroom of the church. And in fact, the Christian marriage of a husband and a wife together shows forth a great mystery, something that was previously unknown but is now revealed. And that is the relationship between Christ and the church and the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife is to be a picture of that relationship. And so when we want to study what it is to be a husband, a godly husband, we need to study Jesus. We need to study Jesus and how Jesus dwells according to knowledge with us. Here we see an illustration, an example of him giving his life for the sheep, for you and me. If you look here, as we continue down in this passage, uh, Jesus speaks of giving his life and, and describes of all of this. And look what he says in verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man or any pluck them out of my hand. He knows you. And not only does he know you, and not only has he given and laid down his life for you, do you see here he also gives unto them eternal life? That's being heirs together of the grace of God. If you've received this everlasting life from the good shepherd, you have received the grace of life. But you know, eternal life isn't something that begins when you die and go to heaven. Eternal life begins when you become one of his sheep. It begins when you are forgiven your sins and saved. It begins when the Holy Spirit moves inside you. That's everlasting life. Now, that's really, really big and deep stuff, isn't it? But bring it back to the marriage relationship. Husbands, wives, especially those of us who have received the grace of life, and this isn't just a gift of eternal life. This is grace that is grace in every aspect, every part of our life. This is the grace that comes when we're in that moment and we don't understand our wife. 
for whatever reason. When we've tried our best to understand and we still don't understand, it's in that moment that there is grace and we are heirs of it. And do we avail ourselves to it? Let me tell you another part of this. Knowing your wife also needs the wives to communicate with their husbands. If you think again of the relationship between Christ and the church, have you ever thought of what God wants from us? Oh, he wants us to pour our hearts out to him. In fact, throughout the Psalms, it's repeated over and over and over about pouring, pouring our hearts out to God. Wives, can you do that with your husband? And husbands, can she do that with you? Knowing that you will use that information to dwell with her in honor and as heirs together of the grace of life? I sure hope so. So often, wives stop sharing what is deepest in their heart because their husbands a long time ago stopped caring. Don't stop caring. Care every day and long to know her, not to in any way do her, do her harm. So many times, information is used as power to manipulate to hurt. No, knowledge and information is not to manipulate or to hurt. Knowledge ought to be used so that we can respond with honor, with grace. In fact, even if we looked at 1 Peter, looking at all of this, the compassion, pitifulness, love, courteousness, blessing, peace. These are things that we pursue when dwelling according to knowledge. And all of this is stated and commanded of the husband. And then it's summed up, not really summed up, because it keeps on going. Don't disconnect, I beg you. Do not disconnect, verse 7, from the rest of the book. Verse 7 is intimately tied and connected to the rest of the book. In fact, the last phrase of verse 7 is a transition into verses 9 through 12 because what is given as a transition at the end of verse 7 is brought to a conclusion in verse 12. Look at the transition. That your prayers be not hindered. And then the admonitions are given a very practical, specific, and detailed instructions and admonitions to husbands and wives and servants and employees and governors and kings and citizens. All. For look what 12 says. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Do you see, verse 7 doesn't end for verse 7 is simply a transition into the remainder of these verses 
and it's tied back in together in verse 12. So what is this about your prayers being hindered? Throughout history, men have behaved themselves or presented themselves, rather, not behaved necessarily, as very moral, upright and outstanding men. When on the inside, they're really not. You've probably heard of the guy who started Buddhism, right? You ever heard of Buddha? We, we have an aversion to that whole system of religion, mainly because of the way we're brought up and rejection of it. But did you know that in the doctrines of Buddhism, there's lots of morality? In fact, you could, you could read certain parts of Buddhism and think you were reading the book of Proverbs in your own Bible. Mirrored. I think he stole it from the book of Proverbs, but that's another topic. The founder of Buddhism talked of a higher spiritual life, you know, of, of living this life in a higher level and in a moral higher degree and of goodness. And so, in order to pursue this higher life of morality, he abandoned his wife and children and went and became a monk in developing his system of religion. Men have done that kind of thing over and over and over again. Dwelling with your wife according to knowledge sometimes means that you say no to certain things that others might perceive as these great spiritual things. Because the spiritual and right thing for you to do is to dwell with your wife according to knowledge and your children and make them a priority in matters and not take this outward show of religion and make it a priority. And churches need to be careful that in their programming, in their scheduling, they don't schedule activities of religious, of, of religious spiritual nature that they're not admonishing and encouraging dads and husbands to make sure that they're first showing piety at home rather than coming to men's prayer breakfast when really they probably needed to stay home and make breakfast for their wife and kids and do the chores on Saturday morning. I'm not saying anything against men's prayer breakfasts. Men's prayer breakfasts are great. But don't go to the men's prayer breakfast if you need to be dwelling with your wife according to knowledge and spending that morning getting to know her. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge. And don't create this false, fake spirituality of how often did the Pharisees or others pray that they might be seen of men. And God rejected it. He would not hear them. It was repulsive to him. In fact, this concept described here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is not new revelation. In the, in the history of progressive revelation, that is, throughout history, as God revealed himself, you know, the books of the Bible didn't all just come as a complete book. They came as they were revealed, a progressive revelation coming to a complete canon that we hold today. And over time, Peter came relatively late 
I mean, probably one of the very last. There's, there's only a few other letters or epistles written after 1 Peter was written. But what he's describing here is not new. It goes way back. And I want to show you one because there's a very profound one in the Old Testament that describes the situation negatively for every one of us. Turn with me to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2 is famous for verse 16 where it says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away he hates divorce. Many people are familiar with verse 16. Some are not. It is a very important verse. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but it's, it's a truth that is rejected in modern times. In fact, some modern translations do not translate this verse. If you happen to have an ESV, note how they've done this. They've not translated this verse. They have interpreted it. And they have interpreted it according to their own opinions, not what the Bible says. For they have read what is in the manuscripts preserved, and they've rejected this here that God hates putting away. And they say, oh, well, that can't be. And they give these reasons and these reasons. And if you look at an ESV Bible, you will see it actually spelled out in the footnote where they will say, literally, it's just as it's recorded here, God hates divorce. But that can't be. So we have changed it to say this. This is a translation the actual description here is what God has said. This is a translation where it says that the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Putting away is a Bible phrase, Old Testament phrase coming from the law of Moses describing divorce. But leaving the translation issue aside, I wanted to make that note because sometimes we have different translations we're exposed to or we may turn to this passage and other people may, we may reference it and other people may turn their passage. Well, it's not there. Tell them to look at the footnote where it says literally this is how it's translated. Be aware of it. But now leaving that aside, let's look at what this passage says. Malachi is a letter written to a people who were hypocrites. That means that they said and did things publicly that wasn't what was really on the inside. They were fake. And their religion was fake. Follow with me. There's a problem here going on because Jewish men are coming to the temple and they are publicly offering sacrifices and praying to God in the sight of men. After they've just come dealing with their wives treacherously, and later in that same day, their wives come to that same altar and they have nothing to offer. They have no sacrifice to offer but tears and weeping, pleading with God for justice. Why? Because their husbands have dealt with them treacherously. Now let's read it, beginning of verse 11. 
God is using this as an analogy also of his relationship with Judah, he being the husband and Judah being the wife. And this is what God says. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange god. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, cut short his life. The master, that's the teacher, and the scholar, the student, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. Oh, you, these, these are the scholars of religious law, and the students of religious law, and the teachers of religious law, and those who are offering offerings unto the Lord of hosts, God says he will cut them off. Why? God continues. He says this, And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, nor receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. Remember 1 Peter? Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Because when you aren't doing those things, your prayers are hindered. God says to you the same thing he says to these people with the offerings that they offer. So here he's indicted them. He's described them of this offerings of weeping and crying out and tears. Verse 14. Yet, you say, wherefore? God has just indicted them saying, I won't take your offerings anymore. No more. No more. I don't want your offerings. And they're saying, why? Wherefore? What for? Why won't you take our offerings? We're pious. We bring our offerings to you. Verse 14, God says this, Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant? And did not he make one? Remember, two, one flesh? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit? And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed? Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth Putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. You see, these men, these husbands, were dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth, 
with the wife of the covenant, the promise, the sacred promise that they had made before God, God is witness. And in fact, they're also abusing them. If you look here in the following part of verse 16, it speaks of them covering violence with his garments. Using garments to cover the bruises of the abuse. God says, I'm wearied of it. You come before me having beaten your wife, dealt with her treacherously, and there's a thousand and one ways you can deal with your wife treacherously. More than that. And then you have the audacity to come to my holy temple and to offer up public prayers and sacrifices as if you're some pious, religious, holy man. God says, I'm weary of it. No. I won't receive it with goodwill at your hand. Verse 17, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of judgment? You see, what's going on here is that the temple was a place where you ought to have been able to come to seek justice. In fact, it was very common for those who were refugees to flee to the temple and to cling on to the horns of the altar. To do so was an appeal for justice to be served. But not only were the husbands dealing treacherously with their wives at home and coming to that very altar and offering vain and piously false and sincere offerings and prayers. Their wives came to that same altar, clinging on to that altar, weeping and crying out and pouring tears upon it, a sign of crying out for justice and the audacity of the priests and the people around. You know what they did? That's what's described in verse 17 and why they further wearied the Lord. For they have said, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Huh! Women are coming crying out for justice at the altar. And those who hear their cause look to the man who's abusing them and says, Your evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And now do you know why the Lord says, I'm weary of it. I'm tired of it. No, no. Not only do they say that it's, their evil is good in the sight of the Lord, huh? they tell them that the Lord delights in it. Horror. Or if they can't quite bring themselves to call it evil, they just leave it with the question and say, where is the God of judgment? God will judge him. We're not going to do anything about it. God will take care of it. Where is the God of judgment? This matter is extreme. Who's the real husband in your home? Who's the real 
you. Husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Some of the violations of treachery are outlined here in 1 Peter. To avoid it, notice it back in Malachi, over and over the phrase is used, take heed to your spirit. Take heed to your spirit, therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. See, it's starting with what's on the inside. It's what's on the inside. Take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. You know what taking heed to your spirit is? is seeking the Holy Spirit. The whole passage regarding husbands and wives and Ephesians is introduced by saying, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, which also, by the way, causes a whole lot of marriage problems, but be filled with the Spirit. And it goes on and speaks to speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and instructions given there of praise and thanksgiving and then instructions are given to the wives, instructions are given to the husbands and to the fathers and to servants. It's very similar to 1 Peter. It's about being filled with the Spirit. And you see back in Malachi and Judah, the people wearied the Lord. They called good evil and they called evil good and they ignored unrighteousness. In Bible Hour this morning, we saw five courageous men who stood up to a host, an army, an army of perhaps, I don't know, it's not given to us, but considering how many captives they were overseeing, perhaps 50 to 100,000 soldiers or more. And five courageous men stood up and said in that gate, justice will be served today. You will not bring those captives in. They will be brought back and returned to their home. 200,000 captives. Five men stood up to an army for justice. That wasn't going on here in Malachi. Is it going on here in our lives, in our church? Look with me. Don't hide sin. Don't hide trouble. Don't hide problems. It needs to be dealt with. Let me jump forward in 1 Peter to deal with this because in the church, there are times in which we will suffer for righteousness' sake, and sometimes it will be standing up for justice. And so chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, notice that phrase again, Oh, dearly beloved. When you find that word in Peter, get ready. He's going to say something really hard. Oh, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody busybody in other men's matters. Note that. 
Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And look at verse 17. For the time is come that judgment, this is righteous judgment, must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. You see, what's being described here to the church is a recognition that we're all sinners. Though it not, ought not to be named once among us, and though it should not, does not become us as saints, it's implying here that there may be murderers, <laughs> thieves, evildoers, busybodies in other men's business. He's appealing, saying, no, let it not be so. But as he continues on, he says, the judgment must begin at the house of God. When those things are real, we don't hide it. We don't ignore it. We don't rationalize it. For judgment must begin at the house of God. It wasn't happening back in Malachi. In Malachi, they were doing the exact opposite. Let us not fall in their failure and mistake. But let us consider ourselves. Who's the real you? Who's the real you? Who's the real me? It's been a very grave sermon. Heavy. I don't want to put you down. But in this same book, it is said that we need to be clothed with humility. In fact, across the page in my Bible from where it says let judgment must begin at the house of God, just right on the other column it says in verse 6 of chapter 5, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. Humble yourself before God. That may mean before your wife, before your husband, before your parents, before a brother or sister in Christ. It may even mean humbling yourself before the ministers of God and the civil government. Let judgment begin in the house of God. And so as I said, 1 Peter chapter 3 is nothing new. It was real back in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. And so it says here, Likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, 
that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise blessing, knowing that thereunto ye are called that ye should inherit a blessing. You're inheritors of the grace of life, and you're also inheritors of a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. For he that will love life and see good, let him eschew evil and do good. For he that will love life and see good, let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Let judgment begin in the house of God. Let us humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God that he may lift us up and let us cast all our cares upon him knowing he cares for us. And let me come back to one conclusion in all of this. So often, this here we look at and in some ways I've said that the sermon's a grave sermon. It's a heavy sermon. It's a heavy text. But Jesus said that my burden is easy and light. Do you know why that is? It's because when we are united with him and we are living in him and he in us, guess who's carrying the burden? He is. So I plead with you as husbands, as wives, as children, as unmarried singles. Take heed to your spirit. Are you walking, living in the spirit of God? And is he living in you? Or are you quenching him? Walk in him. Walk in him. Walk in Christ. He will give you the strength. He will give you the might. He will give you all that you need to do just as is commanded here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Perhaps this morning you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never had your sins forgiven. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You can receive him today by believing that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again, and that Jesus and he alone can forgive your sins, give you that everlasting life, and make you one of his own so that we can look forward to what is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. Let's keep looking for that day when we're in the presence of our good shepherd, our savior, our head. Lord Jesus, we humbly submit and bow before you this day. May your spirit move among us this morning. May judgment begin in the house of God. May secret sins 
be confessed and forsaken. And may each one of us, as husbands, repurpose to intentionally, in your spirit, dwell with our wives according to knowledge and honoring them. May we day by day and moment as husbands, wives, in all relationships and seasons of life, give praise and live as though we are the heirs of the grace of life. May we live in life and not in life and light and not darkness and death, or in the works of darkness or death. But live in your spirit that you might bring forth in us good things and a life that is pleasing to you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace of life. Oh, the hope, the joy that that gives to us to know that we are known by you, to know that in the ages to come we will experience, we will receive, we may know the exceeding riches of your grace and your kindness toward us through you, Jesus. We love you because you first loved us. May your love flow through us to one another. May your grace fill us. May your spirit Fill us and may we walk in your spirit as we commit ourselves to you in this day. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.